everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. In our last episode, we were thrilled to be joined by uh, Luciano Vecchio and uh, Josh Trujillo and Terry Blass. We got to talk all about Iceman. Uh, but today we get to uh, have a guest on that I've been looking forward to for several weeks. Uh, I am thrilled to be joined here by, uh, it, it's funny to say this, but my former boss, <laughs> Mr. Tom Brevoort. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm I'm good. Nice to be here, Chad. Nice to be here as well. When I worked on the Marvel Handbooks years ago, uh, I reported to Jeff Christensen and Jeff Youngquist. But uh, Tom, you were always at the top of the list whenever we were doing <laughs> our work. So it's uh, it's trippy to meet you in person. Uh, well, I appreciate I, all the work that you did. It was a lot of work, but uh, it was a it was a lovely uh, escape from the realities of life. <laughs> <laughs> I am also thrilled to be joined by uh, two of my uh, favorite co-hosts, Noel Reed and Daryl Lawrence. Hi, both of you. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. How are you doing, Noel? Good. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you both here. It's good to see your faces. Uh, as we're doing introductions quickly, let's uh, we'll go in the order of Tom, Noel, then Daryl. Let us know your gender pronouns, where we would know you from, and uh, uh, if you. Uh, <laughs> the the question I, I posited for today is, uh, what's your standard order at a coffee shop? We're going to spend some time at the Cafe Go Go today. Uh, Tom, will you go first? Um. Well, I'm Tom Brevoort. I don't know that anybody would know me from anywhere. Um, uh, my, my pronouns are, are he and him, not that, uh, anybody's really ever questioned that. And, uh, I don't drink any coffee, so I don't tend to frequent a lot of coffee shops. Uh, I do tend to buy frozen chocolates from the Dunkin' Donuts. So that's kind of in the coffee house family. Uh, Salt Lake City uh, just got some Dunkin' Donuts recently. It used to be just an East Coast thing, but they're spreading. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a that's a good or bad thing, depending on uh, where you stand on heavily sugarfied uh, foodstuffs. And we're going to talk uh, talk to Tom about his career, but you have probably seen his name in about twenty five thousand Marvel comic books over the last twenty years. <laughs> uh, let's go over uh, to Noel next. Yes, I'm Noelle Reed. I host the X-Men Unraveled podcast, she, her, and I am the opposite. If I could work out of a coffee shop every day, that's where I would be. And my go-to order is just a caramel latte. Nothing too exciting, but they're good. Delicious. And uh, Daryl. <laughs> Hey everyone, I'm Daryl Lawrence. I am the co-host of the X-Factor Files podcast where we are going through Peter David's X-Factor and my go-to order, I'm so stereotypically gay. Um, it is an iced caramel macchiato and while I'm thinking I need to swirl that cup with the ice in it and make it clank around. So um, I need that. And one time I tried to order one and I asked for an extra shot and they said that's too much. Um, so... <laughs> I guess that was my caffeine limit for the day as self-imposed by Starbucks. <laughs> I uh, I always laugh with my, oh, well, I'm Chad. I use he, him, uh, and uh, you guys all know me because you listen to this podcast regularly. I always laugh with my kids, and this is not meant to slide anyone, but when we go to a coffee shops, which is often, I will order just a black coffee. And there's always someone before or behind me who has like 27 words in their order. And I'm always like... <laughs> it's so stressful <laughs> just listening to people order their uh what temperature they want their foam at or something 
I'm uh, I'm I'm in my uh, coffee go go shirt today. So uh, I uh, very I'm, nice, very I'm, nice. I'm a huge fan of the '60s X Men. Now, you guys, uh, you guys all may know Tom Brevoort from a number of places. Uh, Tom has written a number of comics, uh, Fantastic Force and Secret Defenders and Count Duckula. There's a lot of stuff. Uh, but Tom, I would love to begin with kind of just hearing a little bit about your journey as a comics fan into a comics professional, if you're willing to share. Sure. Yeah, I don't know that you have enough time in the podcast for this, but so I'll try to do it fast. The long story short is uh, I started reading comics when I was six. Uh, my dad, this was back in the 1970s, and my dad was a he wasn't quite a chain smoker, but he was a heavy smoker, as everybody was in those days, which meant that, uh, you know, once or twice a week, he would have to stop by a 7-Eleven or a, you know, similar kind of convenience store to pick up cartons of cigarettes. And so, you know, one day in 1973, uh, we went into this, you know, local 7-Eleven. And for some reason, uh, rather than in the back where it was usually kept, uh, the comic book rack was right up in the front, uh, right by where the register is. And so we were waiting in line and I was kind of looking at it. Uh, and my dad said, you know, do you want a comic? And not being stupid, I said, of course I want a comic. You're going to buy me a thing. I'll take a thing. I like a things. Um, and so I, uh, you know, I bought an issue of Superman, Superman 268. And, uh, uh, you know, pretty much not like immediately, immediately, but pretty immediately I started buying and reading comics regularly. Um, so, you know, flash to many, many years later, uh, I, I, uh, my family had moved to Delaware. I studied at the university of Delaware in their illustration program. Uh, and as part of that program in your senior year, you had to do an internship. Um, and at the uh, at the orientation for the program a few years earlier, you know, the dean of the of the, the curriculum, you know, came out and explained the, the courses. And he'd mentioned in his talking points about the internship that they'd even had one person who had interned at Marvel Comics. And I thought, OK, I, I will do that, you know, when it is my time. And so when the, the, the summer came up, when I had to do an internship. I, I sent outreach letters to, like, not just Marvel and DC, but every, uh, you know, comic company on the East Coast, which in those days, there were a couple. Uh, and Marvel was the only one that got back to me. Um, so I ended up interning there in the summer of 1989. And uh, I was a good enough intern that they wanted to bring me on and hire me full time, which they did at the end of that year uh, in December. And I've been hanging around ever since. I uh, I was just reading the first appearance of The Vanisher today for some research. And he's got this scene. Too. Fine, fine you know, issue. It's fantastic. He's got this scene where he's laying back, smoking this like long 1940s like hair. He's got a cigarette holder, like, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's super long. And he's, he's like, I'm homo superior and I'm better than all of you and you should work for me. As you talked about your dad, that's the image that came into my mind. <laughs> He's just sitting there. Yeah, that's that's completely not the right image, but it's a good image nonetheless. That Vanisher story is weird in that uh, I suspect that character had a different code name first. Like when Jack Kirby drew that story, 
I'm pretty sure he was he had a snake based code name because if you look at that costume, he's wearing a snake suit. Uh, you know, he's got the big uh, headpiece that kind of goes around his head that's got snake markings on it. It's all scaly. Um, you know, it was colored red in that first appearance, but it's typically green. Uh, and I want to say he would have been called the Cobra because the the supervillain the Cobra was introduced around the same time in Thor, sure. and maybe there was something. But I suspect, uh, and I've never delved into it enough yet to get any any definitive answer. I suspect the Vanisher started out as somebody else and the, and became the Vanisher when his original name was not usable for some reason. The Vanisher is one of my favorites. He's on my wall back here. <laughs> he's, he's ridiculous. Uh, uh, so, Tom, I want to just kind of spend some time. Uh, I know this is going to sound really elementary for just a minute, but I want to give some people some context of what it's like to manage a company this size that has been running for this long. Uh, tell people a little bit about uh, what the term canon means uh, versus non-canon. <laughs> Can we start? Uh, sure, sure. Well, canon, uh, you know, it, it's a concept that these days you know, it extends way outside of, uh, you know, the worlds of comics to, you know, pretty much fandoms for just about anything. Uh, and it really boils down to what stories that, you know, involve the, 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 the extended family of characters uh, who were involved in the narrative, uh, and I'm putting this in air quotes, count or, or matter, or were, you know, in some parlance is real as opposed to just a story or we don't pay attention to that anymore um you know time was uh you know in comic books you know you had characters superman had four or five comics every month and all of his stories theoretically happened but because there was no real continuity from issue to issue you know the events of one story would never really be referenced in another story and certainly the events in whatever stories batman was in that month wouldn't be referenced in the Superman comics and so forth. And it was really at the beginning of the, the, the Marvel era of comics that you started to get more interactions and, and interlacing between what was going on in one title and what was happening in another. This is sort of the, the formation of what we think of today as the Marvel universe, where in theory, it's all happening at one time. It's all one continuing large super story in which individually all these different individual threads are are playing out and forming the tapestry that is the marvel universe within that uh you know there is continuity which is really just the huge you know swath of fabric that you're trailing out behind you of stories that you've told in the past um and theoretically all of that makes up the canon the events that happened that are considered to have happened in some way, shape, or form to these characters. Um, you know, this can become a dicier thing, particularly, <laughs> particularly over the course of time, um, because later generations of creators and editors and producers and what have you may want to make story choices that, you know, go against some fact that was established in the past. Uh, and often, you know, do. Uh, you certainly see it a lot in, uh, uh, you know, uh, movie franchises and things. They'll they'll put out uh, a, a new Predator movie, but it will kind of ignore the last two Predator movies, but not the two before that 
and bits of the one before that. And it's very, it's a very complicated structure where you, it's almost difficult to figure out what, what really counts and what really doesn't count. Um, and that's kind of the, you know, the Marvel handbooks, which were inaugurated in the eighties were sort of designed to help, you know, uh, quantify and, and settle some of these questions. Um, because when you have so many people telling so many stories in the same ostensible fictional universe over so much time, you're going to get things that don't quite connect right. Uh, and we still don't have things that don't quite connect right. We just, we paper over the cracks really nicely and, and move along quickly so that you don't notice too much and don't worry about it. Um, and every once in a while, there's something that, that goes away. Um, in the in the Marvel Universe, we try to kind of keep everything that's been published at Marvel, at least since the Fantastic Four in 1961, as being a part of the character's backstory and history. Um, but there are lots of uh, what the handbook used to call uh, 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 topical references, references to things that were going on at the time that the comics were made that by necessity have to kind of be imaginarily shifted in your head because none of these characters are as old as the number of published adventures that they've had. You know, Spider-Man canonically today is maybe 27, 28 years old, and he's had 60 years worth of comics. Mm -hmm. So the stories in which he was worried about the Vietnam War, those still happened. But those references to the Vietnam War, you kind of blur out and you go, whatever conflict was happening then, you know, when Spider-Man meets the president, he met, uh, uh, you know, uh, President Obama, whatever it was now, uh, eight years ago. And at a certain point, he's not going to have been able to have done that because he won't have been old enough. So he will have met Joe Biden <laughs> or he will have met whoever the president is in eight years. Um, you know, and, and so those sort of topographical references tend to fall away over time. There seemed to be for many years uh, a lot of effort to keep things pretty streamlined. It seemed like writers would be like, OK, if we're going to use the vulture this month, where did he appear last? Oh, he was in jail. So we need to include a blurb about how he got out of jail. And then at a certain point, you see the vulture at eight titles in one, you know, one three month period. And you're like, you just have to kind of map it together. So when we worked on the handbooks, there was always this headache of trying to fix it. Uh, Marvel also for many years offered what they called no prizes. So someone would draw a flashback to Gwen Stacy dying and her headband wasn't on. And so they'd write in and say, let me come up with a reason why Gwen Stacy's headband wasn't in this panel. And Marvel would send out an envelope saying, you win a no prize because you you solved the continuity error. Oh, you've got one. Tom's holding up a no prize. <laughs> I have the last existing supply of genuine no prizes. Oh, my God. They are, they are to my left. Did you ever win a no prize as a fan? I did not. Um, I have. No, I, I never won one for real. Um, I have them all now, so it sort of doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, you know, one of the very few still empowered to to give them out simply because uh, possession is nine tenths of the law. Um, but uh, I never actually won one for for real. If I'm really nice to you today, you're welcome to send me a no prize. <laughs> well, we'll see how the next hour goes. 
I also know that as editors, a lot of your job, I mean, you're working on production and talent and all these things, but a lot of your job is trying to avoid continuity errors or, or mis mixing things. How much of your time do you spend on this? I know you're, I know you're just an encyclopedia for Marvel everything, but how much of your time do you spend trying to avoid continuity errors? Um, probably not as much as you would think, uh, and certainly not as much as editors might have done 30 years ago. You're absolutely right. There was a change in ethos at a certain point, uh, and that was just a generational thing. As one generation of editorial staff and what they valued in terms of the product that they were publishing, uh, uh, you know, uh, ended up, uh, you know, uh, rotating out. And new generations of people came in who didn't care about that as much and were more concerned with other things. Also, as I say, the longer you go on and the more stuff there is uh, behind you, um, the more the more restrictive and more difficult it becomes. And at a certain point, it's it, it's almost it almost requires more energy to police than it's actually worth. You know, sure. one of the things I tell our editors today. Uh, is that uh, you know continuity is a it's a tool, um, and the, the 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 continuity is there to serve and to service the stories. The stories are not there to service the continuity. Uh, and at one point in the late '80s or the early '90s, that might not really have been the case. There were a lot of stories in those days about other stories trying to make sense of events that happened in other comics and clean up something that was either bothering somebody or that some creator didn't like or, or, or whatever. Uh, and those are stories that are, are, are focused on or aimed at a relatively tiny percentage of the audience base. Um, you know, I, I, I want to build stories and have comics that will, will reach and, and impact on and touch uh, and inveigle back to buy another one, the widest audience possible. Uh, and so you know, telling stories about comics that we published five years ago uh, you know, is sort of exclusatory to anybody who wasn't reading those comics five years ago. Uh, there has to be a little more going on than just that. Um, you know, that having been said, the fact that these are characters and stories that have been around for decades and that people have invested a lot of time and energy in them, uh, you know, readers uh, like yourselves, not even uh, you know, uh, creators or editors or whatnot, uh, there's value to that. And being able to reference key events or bring back characters or, 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 or provide um, some ancillary uh, payoff and value to stories that saw print years ago and that people read years ago, that's one of the things that we can do that most other mediums can't. And it provides a very specific sort of endorphin hit for, for a reader that's been around that long, where they go, not only I remember that, but I cared about that and it's back and I care about it again. And you've given me all the feels. Or um, on the flip side, I remember, for example, Kurt Busiek doing the Thunderbolts and using characters I'd never heard of. And I had this great joy of seeking out the back issues to learn yeah. these people's stories. You know, I, I always thought, thought that was great. We, uh, you, you really eloquently summed up the sliding time scale a minute ago. You know, there was a point when Captain America was in the iceberg for 20 years. There's going to come a point where he was in the iceberg for 200 years, right? Because things keep yes. moving forward constantly. But you also have the complication of a lot of titles being added to go back and fill in space. The, 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 uh, the series we're going to review today briefly, Untold Tales of Spider-Man, is an example of that, where we go back and we wedge modern stuff 
uh, or interpretations into the old stuff. And it happens way more than people think. Uh, tell us a little bit about the consideration that goes into telling these types of stories, going back and uh, filling in the blanks. Well, uh, depending on who the creative team is, either a lot of consideration or not a lot of consideration is given. Um, I, you know, I think people see that there's there's fun and value in revisiting these storytelling periods of old because there's a, a nostalgic audience for any of them. Although at this point, the nostalgic audience for the era covered in Untold Tales of Spider-Man is probably all starting to die off because it's been that long. But, you know, doing we're doing X-Men Legends right now. And, you know, here's Larry Hama doing a Wolverine story set in his era of Wolverine 30 years ago. And there's Louise Simonson doing an X-Factor story set in her or, uh, you know, her, her era of, of X-Factor and so forth. And again, there's value to that. There are people who loved those runs and those characters in those particular iterations um, who enjoy, you know, revisiting them. Um, that said, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of creators who go back and do that, and a lot of the editors who who you know oversee those stories, um, they don't do a super deep dive into uh, the research of okay, where was everything at that point? Not just where were things in, and I'm going to say X Factor, even though I, I don't mean to call out. I'm not specifically speaking of Louise's story. I am speaking in a generality. Uh, I didn't. I haven't read <laughs> Louise's story, so. I'm sure it's wonderful, but, um, you know, not only what was going on in X Factor at that point, but what was going on in all the other titles of the Marvel Universe. Uh, what what our armor was Iron Man wearing? So that if Iron Man shows up in this X Factor story, he's in the right status quo for the period and so forth. And frankly, most of that detail doesn't matter to the average reader of today who doesn't have that background, um, you know, who wasn't there reading those Louise stories in the eighties and who can just, you know, who read them as, you know, collected editions in an Epic collection or on Marvel unlimited or whatever. And went, man, I love that Louise Simonson run. And here's a new story. She's written of, of, uh, you know, X factor and beast has got that problem where he's sort of, you know, losing his intellect and Iceman's got a belt. that has got to keep his powers uh, contained and so forth. And I love all that stuff. And here's another story like that. Um, but they don't necessarily know, what was going on with Fantastic Four at that time. And so if the Fantastic Four show up and are wearing the wrong suits or have the wrong characters in the team or whatnot, they don't mind it so much. But to the readers who were there, that stuff drives them crazy. It's like it's like uh, bamboo shoots under your fingernails. That's not the Iron Man. That can't have... How does this story fit in with the this? Um, but again, as I was saying before, the the, the flip side of that is that's a heck of a lot of work to do for a relatively small portion of your audience. Sure. And some creators are wired to want to do that work and want to get everything right. And others are happy to get the sense of it. Uh, and, you know, it's not so much one is right and one is wrong. It's just there are differences of opinions and everybody individually, I think, has a different shade of that. You know, it's what you kind of call headcanon. Here's the stuff I care about that I read, and here's the stuff I don't care about that was going on that I read. And so if you've got whatever, if you got Dazzler in the wrong status quo, I don't care. But if you've screwed up Havoc, I am down your throat, uh, you, know, uh, you know, because 
these are the bits that matter to me, and those are the stories that really you know, impacted on me. Noel joined me, for example, for an episode where we did the prehistory of Magneto. We added all the stuff from like Magneto Testament, <laughs> all the things that talked about everything that was supposed to have taken place before he appeared in X-Men 1. And when I came up with the idea, I was excited. And then, God damn it, but the research, <laughs> was so much research. It was pages and pages. But I, I, I kind of have the brain for that stuff. I think it's a lot of fun in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. I know a lot of creators prefer to add continuity when it's part of a more modern story. And a great example of that is like X-Men Deadly Genesis, where you go back and tell the Krakoa story of the secret team that Professor X had. Uh, there's right. a lot of, but there's been a lot of series over the years that go back and tell uh, continuity stories that don't fit. And uh, some of them are canon, some of them are not. Can I do a little bit of a, a lightning round with you and toss some titles at you? Uh, tell me if you think they're canon or not, or uh, or if you have no opinion, that's also okay. Is that all right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. One, one of them that comes to mind is Avengers 1959, which tells us that Sabretooth was an Avenger in the 50s with Nick Fury. Um, I would say broadly canon, some specifics shaky. How about uh, First X-Men? It's the uh, it's the story that goes back and tells Bolivar Trask. Uh, that, 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 is that the, that's the Neil Adams project, right? Yeah, the Neil Adams product, project with Christos Gage a few years ago. If you if you ask me, I'd say nah, not canon. Uh, but I think if if I was you know in my in my work shoes, I'd be like, well, we'd try to find some way to fit it in. Like I, I don't like to discount anything that we published as out of canon. But I look at that and I go, oh, that one's. You know, Avengers 1959 is pretty messy too, but that one's really messy. Uh, I, I don't know, and I don't know if there's any great value in enforcing it to fit. I mean, uh, X Men Season One. Uh, that's the part cover, the 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 uh, the the one that Jamie did. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. Um, I I feel like all the season ones kind of follow the same model, which is to say, they all count. But again, in a loosey-goosey sort of way, because in most cases, they were just updatings and modernizations of the original stories from the 60s. And so... Uh, X-Men Children of the Atom. X-Men Children of the Atom. Boy, that was a good project once. Uh, <laughs> fell apart by the end of it. But boy, there was some potential there. Um, very dif very difficult to square the circle with that yeah all of the x-men go to the same high school in that one it doesn't that one's that it's a hard one to make fit i remember i was i i i was giving you know like unofficial feedback on that as they were putting it together and joe casey and i would would joust back and forth about you know certain points of of order there and you know how 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 all the x-men can suddenly go to the same high school and like you know we found there's five mutants in america and they're all in the same, you know, school district. <laughs> How that's crazy, uh, and and that we'd seen like in, you know, the '60s or whatnot. They were all scattered around, and they got pulled together. And you know, Joe had the story he wanted to tell, and Joe would, you know, like anything, he cared about the stuff he cared about. He didn't care about the stuff he didn't care about, and and so that becomes a that becomes a story. And if it if it if it connects with the audience enough that kind of is what makes it canon because people like it and people reference it, you know, children of the Atom. I don't know that a lot of creators since that story saw print have made reference to its events. Um, and so it's there, it's perfectly fine. It's, you know, it's available somewhere in trade paperback or hardcover or, or whatnot, but you know, it, canon, 
I don't I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. Uh, you you referenced X Men Legends a minute ago. It seems like that one is canon. What about uh, X Men Classic? The uh, you're talking about the backups in the reprint book. Yep. Most of those tend to tend to have stuck. I personally don't like any of the stories where they dropped two pages into the reprinted story to show you some nonsense to try to make it fit in 1988. Uh, I hated all of those. Uh, largely because I'd read those comics when they were coming out, and it was like, no, I'm sorry, you, you, you didn't know that those guys were connected to the Hellfire Club then, Chris, and trying to go back and pretend like you did, it doesn't change things. It doesn't make sense. Um, uh, how about X-Men The Hidden Years? Um, X-Men The Hidden Years, I don't think there's any real problem with. Those, those, that, that period is is fairly open for the X-Men characters between X-Men 66 and, and Giant Size 1. There's a lot of territory there, and I don't think uh, John Byrne did much that was, uh, you know, you can, you can question how good or bad the stories are, but there isn't much there from a, from a canonical standpoint to go, oh, they, they, they're not there, they don't count. Uh, let me uh, run two more by you, uh, even, yep. though I, even though there's a long, long list. Uh, Wolverine Origins. I think it probably counts, although like Wolverine is one of those characters where just by the nature of the character, there are more stories about his past than there are days in the calendar, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, in that, and, and there'll be more as we move forward because his, you know, hazy, unexplored, mysterious past is always a good breeding ground for story material. So there's always going to be new people cropping up, new loves he had in the 20s or 30s and new people he hung around with in the 60s, his beatnik phase in 1958 or whatever <laughs> um, that that, you know, that are going to become part of that. Um, so, again, I don't think there's anything in Wolverine Origins that I'd say, nope, it's it's out, it's done. But it's all, you know, like the ongoing, uh, you know, timeline and tapestry, it's all kind of got to be forced together to make sense in everything and then the last one I'll run by you. Oh, oh no go no go no go ahead sorry i it was so funny because my podcast follows the x-men or i try to follow it chronologically and there was a time where i was like is this turning into a wolverine podcast because <laughs> i started way back and it was like wolverine wolverine more wolverine so yeah, I definitely felt that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm not looking forward to when Wolverine joins the book. I mean, I am, but we did the Magneto episode, Noel. I'm not looking forward to the no the Wolverine timeline that I have to generate at some point. Uh, the last one I'll run by you, Tom, is uh, Marvel: The Lost Generation. Um, again, I, I'd say counts, but you know, there's there's some there's some asterisks there. Um, there's some stuff that you have to sort of squint at or ignore. Um, you know, I don't know that Reed Richards can have been around for those stories in the 1960s um, at, at this point. I don't know that he could have been when those stories were done uh, in the 90s. But, you know, Roger and John wanted him there. So he was there. But, uh, you know, so there are things there. But, you know, was the was the Yankee Clipper a superhero You know, in that that interim period? Yeah, probably. You know, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with that. And those are just a bunch of characters and. You know, if you like those stories, great. And, you know, if you didn't love them, it's possible that somebody tomorrow will come up with the greatest Yankee Clipper story ever imagined 
and and suddenly that'll be a beloved character in the same sort of way that you know Doctor Nemesis was a nobody throwaway Invaders villain, uh, and suddenly people loved him when Matt brought him into X Men stuff. I agree with you so much about the X-Men classic stuff too, because I'm making my way through the Claremont run for the first time. And I have the omnibus of the mm -hmm. X-Men classic stuff. And I mean, the omnibuses as a whole are beautifully mapped, but that one is so complicated as a first time reader because you're reading the really good backup stories. And then it's like, oh, by the way, there was some additional dialogue added just to this one panel. Why don't you take a read? And it's like, but, I don't think I actually needed that. I don't. Yeah. Again, any time where they added dialogue or changed dialogue, that to me felt like dirty pool. Like I might have been, I might have been convinced, you know, if you dropped a page in between two other pages or something. Uh, and even there, I feel like that's kind of dicey. It's a reprint book. These are technically the events that happen. You know, I when, when I read them in 1977, they happened this way. That's how I remember them. That's always going to be the North Star for me. And so once once you start going and say, well, they didn't really say that. They said something different because it needs to connect to this thing now. That it feels too much to me, like uh, you know, Star Wars director's cuts and things. Like, nope, nope, nope. Dude shot first. No ring around the Death Star when it blew up. Shitty mat lines everywhere. That's the way it was, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, you know, can't uh, can't do it. But for other people, you know, who love it or let you know, that that's fine. That's their experience. Uh, just to take us in a different direction, I have a question for you because I know that you were um, overseeing She-Hulk in the early two thousands when yes. it was coming out, and now that the new TV series is out, and I really enjoy it. I'm a She-Hulk fan. Um, how do you feel about seeing things that you were so involved with in the creative process? come onto the big or the small screen? Um, well, you know, the, the short answer to that is it's all cool. Um, you know, She-Hulk is not the first time, obviously, that I've seen stuff that I've worked on that gets, uh, you know, transliterated into, into movies or TV and so forth. Uh, there's been a bunch of it and there's a bunch more coming up. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of cool and it's kind of additive. It's not like, that's the reason we made those stories. We made those stories to do a bunch of hopefully good She-Hulk stories that people liked and and bought and supported. Um, but it's you know it's kind of nice in a well imagine that you know sort of way when when some of that stuff gets reflected in these latter day media uh, you know properties. Uh, and for those you know who ask, I I generally don't tend to have a problem that they change it all around because they've got to do what makes sense to make a good movie or a good television episode. And that's a very different world than the world of publishing comics. Um, you know, back when I used to get this question, now it's like 10 years ago, uh, I used to tell people that like the difference between what, what I do and what, you know, Marvel studios does is they tell one captain America story every two years. And I tell, you know, maybe five Captain America stories every month. And what that means is they get a big pile of Captain America ideas, uh, I, you know, that some of which worked out great, some of which were lousy, some of which were so-so. And they can pick through that detritus and find 
all of what they think are the best bits and connect bits that uh, weren't connected originally and turn things around and add some stuff that wasn't there and throw out some stuff and get something that works perfectly for them for a two-hour movie. Um, so it's not like what they're doing is exactly what we're doing. It's using what we did as as raw materials, as fuel. Um, and, you know, so again, it's always, it's always kind of nice to go, hey, it's that character that we came up with, or it's that story bit that we came up with. Um, you know, I, I always appreciate that. Um, and, uh, you know, it is kind of, it is kind of delightful. Uh, Noel, go ahead. Yeah. So when when characters show up in one comic or another, like the X Men showing up in a in a Spider Man comic, I'm always so interested in their personalities. Like, is it the are these the characters that you know we're familiar with, or are they are they a take on you know these characters that somebody else might have? Um, I know there's one. I think it's, I can't remember which one it is, but there's a Magneto story where he's, it's, it's an older comic and he's still acting crazy, but uh, it's like, a, it's, it's ramped up. Mm -hmm. And so like, what are the considerations that go into like introducing a character into a series that they don't necessarily show up in a lot? Well, and I'll, uh, I'll add yeah. to that really quickly, if that's okay. Two examples yeah. that come to mind, Noel. Uh, we, when we had our conversation around Juggernaut and reviewed his whole history, there's he appears a couple times in Hulk working for the Nazis. Or uh, recently, when Celine was in Tanahisi Coates, Captain America, killing all these people, and they're like, "Why hasn't she faced justice on Krakoa?" And people are like, "It's not an X Men story." Sure, sure. I, well, I think uh, you know. First off, um, even within a line of books different creators are going to have different takes on, on characters. Certainly Grant Morrison's Magneto is markedly different than Chris Claremont's Magneto is markedly different than uh, Jonathan Hickman's Magneto. Um, they're, they all, you know, theoretically the, the guy has the same backstory of appearances behind him, but what those authors are interested in, what facets they want to explore, what stories they want to tell and which which of the previous material they care about and don't care about, you know, tends to, tends to vary. Um, so, so there's always a certain amount of interpretation when it comes to these characters. Um, you know, and that is true when they guest star in other, in other titles. Now, theoretically, if Magneto shows up in an issue of Spider-Man, uh, the X-Men editor, you know, Jordan White is is going to get to see that issue of X-Men. He'll read the script when it comes in. He'll get to look at the final lettered book uh, to make sure that it's all kind of, you know, within bounds. Um, you know, on, on practical terms, uh, you know, sometimes, particularly over the last couple of years where we haven't been centrally located in one office because of the pandemic, we've all been working remotely. And so this kind of coordination is a little bit more uh, remote and difficult to manage. They, and sometimes it's just personalities. Some people are better at, at following through on this stuff than others. Um, and the same thing is true of the, the creators that are involved. Some creators are easier to get to change something than, than others. And so, you know, you're, you're always kind of measuring, what do I want to spend my coin on? If I, if I get to make two changes in this 
in this story? What are the two changes I need versus the six changes that in a perfect world, I'd like to get all of these. Um, and so there's always interactions back and forth. And there are always situations that you don't know about, you know, to give a, to give a, a random example um, uh, about a year and a half ago uh, in an issue of Venom, the Avengers offered Venom membership in the Avengers and I knew nothing about it. <laughs> I found, I found out about it when people, you know, the issue came out and people online were showing up in my, my social media feeds going, you know, what's going on with this, this Venom and the Avengers thing. And I had to track it down and, figure out what the heck it was and then, and then go, oh, okay. But, you know, I looking at the scene, the scene was benign. It was fine. I would have liked to have known about it ahead of time as the Avengers editor, but you know, say, say la vie. Um, so, so again, there's always a certain amount of, of interpretation. There's also, you know, the needs of Spider-Man as a storytelling series and a storytelling engine are maybe different than the needs of X-Men or maybe different than the needs of Daredevil or the Hulk or, or whatever. Uh, and so you're going to tend to get different emphases uh, when you're, when you're in place, certainly, uh, you know, what, uh, uh, you know, like what the, what the creators you were talking about a few minutes ago, I almost laughed out loud when you were like, I hate it when they take our, our characters and put them over here. It turns out they're all Marvel's characters. And, you know, somebody was writing Juggernaut before you, and somebody will write Juggernaut again after you. And that's, you kind of have to be able to have that mindset and understand you're not an unimportant player for the time that you're contributing to this shared universe. You're, you're a part of that creative gestalt, but it's bigger than you are. You know, I edited Captain America for, I think it was 15 or so years uh, and before me somebody else said it's captain america and today somebody else said it's captain america and that is the way of things right, uh, right you know the shared universe by its nature has shared in it and that means sometimes other people are going to get to play with the toys and sometimes they're going to do things with them that you don't love uh and again you know occasionally those things will be egregious enough where people will feel a need to genuinely do stories to rectify that or to explain that or whatever, but you go too far down that rabbit hole and you do start to get into stories about stories or uh, little ridiculous pissing contests between creators. Famously, you know, back in the eighties, uh, Chris Claremont and John Byrne had a whole back and forth over about half a dozen issues of X-Men and Fantastic Four because they didn't agree on the treatments of one another's characters. And how could you have had Dr. Doom do that? I'm going to show that that was just a Dr. Doom robot. Oh, yeah? Well, how could you do that thing with Lelandra and this? I'm going to show that Lelandra's pissed about that and is going to do that. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to... None of that is in the service of good storytelling. All of that is about dick measuring. Uh, and none of it really has any place in, in the storytelling. So, you know, again, there's stuff where... You know, mistakes are made. We do a lot of comics every month, and not every story is brilliant, and not every story is sacrosanct. Uh, and so sometimes you have to go in and 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 contextualize and, and adjust something that's there. Uh, hopefully, though, you do so uh, from a place of of uh, rationality uh, and and not just a place of of ego. 
uh, you know, or, or whatever, in, in going, ah, how could they have had Juggernaut do that? Um, you know, and I say that as the, the editor who, uh, you know, who let Dan Slott put a lie to the fact that Juggernaut slept with She-Hulk because we didn't like it. <laughs> so, so there you go, you know. Well, it's, Juggernaut... It's, it's, a, it's a common rule of this business that, you know, uh, uh, which is, I hate that except when I do it. Juggernaut's husband, Black Tom, would be very upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's true. It's true. Uh, although I think they were only really, yeah, you know, common law at that point. <laughs> they they'd been together. They'd been together for a long while, but uh, you know, there was it was it was a don't ask, don't tell situation in those days. Oh my goodness! Uh, yeah. Is this is this Tom Brevoort confirming that it's canon that Juggernaut and Black Tom are together? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, no, it is not. This is just me making a dumb joke. No, I know. I'm, this, kidding. I'm kidding right back. Is this, that, you can, is this, this is clearly you can... going to be the, 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 the internet headline on this from, from here on out. <laughs> what I'm hearing is that there's going to be a wedding issue next year that we're looking forward to. <laughs> so it's not common law anymore. It, it's not Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. It's going to be legit. So, you know, I'll look forward to that. Krakoa law is very different. It's its own thing. Mutant, mutant, mutant law works in 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 completely uh, different ways. So it is a anything. fun time. It is a fun time to be an X Men fan. <laughs> uh, as you're as you're talking, Tom, my my brain is buzzing with all of the stuff when I worked on the handbooks that we'd have to try to make sense of. And like, okay, so if this was a robot, what does that mean, and where does this fit? And sometimes it's worked into into the stories really seamlessly. I mean, as an example, Magneto was turned into a baby in a Defenders story, and then Chris Claremont used that as well. Moira messed with him and now he like changed his personality and now he's not crazy 60s Magneto anymore. Now he's this right. very, he's this very uh, sympathetic villain who has a, oh, by the way, World War II, like uh, concentration camp history. Let's weave that in. One of the things that's really fun uh, as a comic book fan who's reading in a shared universe, um, I kind of try to think of it as a series that's been running for a thousand seasons. And you're sure. always wanting to pull back to the beginning and add new pieces. So things like, Iceman being gay, or Professor X keeping big secrets from the team, or uh, Moira McTaggart was a villain all along with uh, with the mutant status and immortal lives in other places, right? Uh, it's really fun to go back and try to add the pieces together. Um, that must be a headache for you and your job, though. Um, not necessarily a headache. Um, it's, it's, it's a problem when it's done poorly. Uh, and really, to some degree, uh, I really credit uh, Alan Moore with being the cause of a lot of this, because when Alan Moore started writing Swamp Thing in 1982 or whenever it was, like the first thing he did was was go, everything you know about this character is wrong. He's not a guy named Alex Holland who was turned into a swamp creature. Turns out Alex Holland is dead and has been ever since then, and he's actually a plant that thinks he's Alex Holland. But because that's the case, he can now do this and this and this and this and this and this and this is now true. And here's a revelation about this. And suddenly his whole uh, uh, story engine is much more expansive and a lot more interesting. Mm -hmm. But everybody at the time in those early 80s was super excited about that. Uh, and that was a lot of, you know, Alan Moore did that kind of trick a couple of times. He did it with Marvel Man. Uh, you know, he, he did it in a few places. Uh, and the buzz of that, the idea that there's a bigger secret underneath all of the stuff that you've read. There's a hidden thing that once you see it, 
recontextualizes everything else you've read. Um, you know, that's such a powerful thing for the audience when it works that a lot of people try to be Alan Moore. And the problem is Alan Moore is the singular talent. He's probably the best uh, single, you know, mainstream comic book writer the field has ever had. Um, you can certainly, there are certainly other people that you could argue are, are in the same class in, in one way or another, but in terms of you know, long-term impact and so forth, everybody is still chasing that anatomy uh, lesson uh, uh, issue of, of Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, that means that sometimes, you know, people want to reveal stuff uh, just to reveal it or just because it seems exciting in the moment. And that's when you have, kind of have to weigh the, the, the risk-reward ratio. Like, okay, what do you get out of this? What do you lose out of this? And the best example of that I can give you personally is uh, the, we brought Bucky back in Captain America. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, what, what's, what's funny about that is that uh, a year, maybe a year before we did that story, there was another story that the previous uh, editorial team on Captain America wanted to do that was going to bring Bucky back. And I argued against that story like a demon. I was implacable. Um, there was a there was a a, a, a day when uh, we were we'd assembled together. We were, we were coming together for a meeting, and it was a meeting about something totally different. Uh, and Joe Casada and I happened to be there. You know, we, we were among the first people there, and we started talking about this story. And you know, we went back and forth on it. Uh, and our voices got louder and louder to the point where we were just straight out yelling at one another, spittle flying into our faces, uh, you know, him in support of this because he liked, you know, how, how it upset the apple cart and transgressed everything and me arguing against it because it was reductive and it took away this tragedy from Cap and all this stuff. Um, not angry with one another, but, but invested enough in it that it was a, a full-on shouting match. Uh, and then we had our meeting and you know did our business, uh, and that story didn't happen. Um, and so you know I inherited the Captain America book a year later, uh, and Ed Brubaker was going to come in and write it, and he wanted to bring Bucky back. Uh, and Joe was so happy. He he came into my office and said, "Hey, I just talked to Ed Brubaker. He wants to write Captain America." And I went, "That's great, Ed Brubaker. He's a terrific writer. I know his work from Batman and Catwoman, and I remember." Uh, you know, his old indie book, Low Life, which always embarrasses him just a little bit when I bring it up in interviews like this. Um, you know, that'd be terrific. And Joe, like, cracked a big smile and said, he wants to bring Bucky back because uh, he knew <laughs> he knew he was he was getting one over on me. Um, and so, you know, like the first conversations I had with Ed really boiled down to like, OK, I'm open to at least listening to this. But here you know, here sort of categorically are all of my concerns. Uh, you know, some of them specific storytelling concerns. Okay, Bucky's alive. Where is he? Where's he been? Why does nobody know about it? Uh, uh, how is he still young? You know, Bucky was a was a kid in the 40s. How How is this not an old man doddering around going, Cap, so great to see you again, or whatever. You know, but, and, you know, I had about 15 points. Yeah, and the last of them really boiled down to, okay, you know, the idea that Bucky is the 
is the fallen soldier, is, is, is the, the, the tragedy of Captain America's life, and metaphorically stands for any, any soldier who goes off to war and has their, their friends and their buddies killed around them, and it's this haunting tragedy that follows them. If you bring that character back, that goes away. What do we get out of it that's equal or better to that by having this guy around? Because, great, we do this Bucky story, and it's the best Bucky story ever, and it's a great issue. Next month, what? Right, right. And Ed, Ed went away for you know a week or two, however long it ended up being, and he called me back, and he went through literally like a checklist everything that I had had said, all the issues. I think I'd emailed it to him as a as a document by that point. Um, yeah, and he went through them one by one. It's this, and and this happens, and here's where he is, and. He was here in the Soviet control, and this happened, and, uh, and, and here's what we get out of it. And he got to the end of this, and I kind of went, well, I guess we're doing this story then. And it's a uh, great story. And, it was, I read we, that in real time. It's so good. Well, well thank you. you know, it, and and it, worked out, it worked out well, obviously. And now, you know, almost immediately, that was a part of their, their Captain America movie planning. Uh, and so now, like, nobody thinks of, other than you know people who are who are older than that who who you know experienced those earlier Captain America stories, nobody thinks of Bucky as as you know the 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 kid the soldier who died the young guy who died at war. They all think of him as that dude who was brainwashed by the Soviets, um, and that's you know that's why you do it. But you have to weigh it. I feel like, and you know others could argue me. I feel like I was right both times. That I was right to to fight so hard to go. No, you shouldn't do that here because essentially you don't have answers for my fifteen questions. And yes, we, okay, we'll we'll go ahead, we'll try it because you do have answers for my fifteen questions, and I have respect for your, for your storytelling talents and our you know as a team storytelling talents to be able to pull this stuff off and there that's that's a great example of it being done well brubaker also did uh deadly genesis or we have hickman doing the moira stuff or uh or you know the cassandra nova retcon i mean there's stuff there's stuff yep. that you added it's great and then there's times when you're going what were they thinking <laughs> well it also becomes it becomes ridiculous at a certain point because you're adding stuff on top of stuff that's already been added right um the best example of this that i i would use is back in the 80s and 90s when DC introduced the Legends of the Dark Knight uh, series. Uh, and the premise of that was those were going to be standalone Batman stories of X number of issues set in the past, in the earlier days of Batman's career, so that creators could do whatever they want. And often, creators did stories that went back, as you tend to do, to the primal origin of Batman, the night that he and his parents went to that movie and then were coming home and got shot. And so suddenly, you know, in one story, uh, you know, at the movie, he has an encounter with a young Kirk Langstrom who will grow up to be Man Bat. And in another story right before that, uh, uh, Martha Wayne is working on her, her, uh, her, her efforts to, 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 to get, uh, unexploded ordnance out of battlefields, and in another, Thomas Wayne was dealing with this guy, and another, uh, and, and individually, any of those stories are great. But if you read them all, you know, in one sitting or in a trade paperback, that's a busy night for the Waynes. 
and the most significant date on their calendar. Like literally everything in their lives and in Batman's lives. Batman, you know, as a, as an eight year old, met two dozen people who were going to, you know, loom large over his life from there on in. Uh, and that's that's kind of the flaw with with going back to that primal stuff so often or or overturning it so much is you can get to the point where it's all ridiculous because at the end of the day, even today, after all those stories, when you tell the origin of Batman, it's went to the movies, got shot coming home, Batman. And all of that stuff just goes away. Like none of it, none of it held. Whereas, uh, you know, I'm not, don't mean this to be like a Marvel is better than DC thing, but uh, yeah, whereas, you know, Cassandra Nova is still an ongoing concern. You know, like that idea or dislike that idea, she's still there. She's still a part of the tapestry. They're still telling new stories about that. So that 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 change, that revelation, uh, stuck. That became part of canon in a way yeah. that Kirk Langstrom in the in the eaves did not. There's always a. I'm thinking of danger as well. The danger room becomes sentient, and she still has stories going on. I have yeah. about, I have about a hundred questions I want to ask you, Tom. But I want to I want to stick to two, and then we'll go on with our issue review. There have been a number of characters over the years that were considered to be mutants, and then later they said no, they're not mutants anymore. Uh, among them are Squirrel Girl and the Falcon as examples. But two of them are are pretty controversial decisions that I know people get pretty fired up over. Uh, and I want to hear your opinions on both of these. Uh, one of them being Franklin Richards. Right. Uh, and then the other being, uh, most famously, the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, who were uh, who were mutants. And then they were made Magneto's children after they were the wizard's children. And then they were made not mutants and not Magneto's children. So th- those are the two I wanted to, to pick your brain on really quick. Those are, again, those are complicated characters and in, in a lot of cases, complicated situations. Uh, and both of them, I had a hand in, um, you know, the, the Franklin one more so even than the, the Quicksilver and, and Scarlet Witch, uh, one. Um, but, uh, and I certainly understand why these things are controversial for people. So much of it depends on when you started reading the characters and reading the books. Uh, you know, starting with Franklin, here's the thing. Franklin wasn't a mutant until Days of Future Past was published. Um, there's no reference in any Marvel comic before that to him being a mutant. Uh, he was born. He had some weird, crazy powers that seemed to evidence. Reed turned his brain off for a while. Uh, he did a bunch of things, but it wasn't until uh, Chris and John did Days of Future Past and had him in the Sentinel future where anybody went, that character is a mutant. Um, and uh, honestly, uh, you know, not for nothing, there's a big vortex pull that the X-Men have, that the, that the idea that this character is a mutant uh, uh, has because the X-Men have a number of titles that they need to fill. And there's a tendency to pull characters into that world and then not relinquish them because they are now associated with the X-Men. Well, and as, a, shot as, as, a quick, a, as a quick aside, Franklin Richards really only interacted with the X-Men, if I'm recalling, during the two Fantastic Four X-Men crossovers and then the Onslaught stuff. Oh, and then there was that Day Trippers or whatever that was called. Yeah, like, there was, yeah. He's, he's had, a, he's had a, a couple of different interactions over the years, but it wasn't really central to him. Sure, sure. You know, I, what I, was I'll central... Oh, no, you're, you're perfectly fine. You know, at least to me, what was central about him was he was, you know, the son of Reed and Sue, and he had these weird, uncontrollable powers. And those powers were a problem. 
And the reason they were a problem is they solve every story. Um, you know, the, the, the more powerful he is, the more stuff he can do and the more control he has over it, the less stakes there are in any Fantastic Four story. Uh, and it's a problem. It was a problem for years uh, that we would try to address one way or another. And some people liked it and some people didn't like it. Jonathan Hickman, when he was writing Fantastic Four, clearly liked it and steered into it and built this whole mythology going out to the very end of time of Franklin and his role in the universe and so forth. Sure. But on a on a practical level, working on Fantastic Four month in and month out, it was very difficult to figure out how whatever the Mole Man had going on that day was going to be a challenge for these guys when you have God Kid in the back room. Um, so, so you know, making Franklin uh, not a mutant was kind of a byproduct of making him not empowered, honestly. Uh, and that was a choice. It was a storytelling choice. You know, I, I made it, I did it. Uh, and, and, you know, people are saying, Oh, you, you ruined all this stuff for whomever. And, you know, I kind of go, well, you know, it's, it's, it's Marvel stuff at the end of the day and nobody owns it. We all, we all rent it and we all do this. And so maybe tomorrow I'll be dead and somebody else will be here. that will make Franklin a mutant again. Uh, it certainly uh, simplifies things. Uh, what about Wanda and Pietro? Wanda and Pietro were complicated as much as anything because of of the the assorted rights and the situations between the various stakeholders. Um, you know, simultaneously, uh, Quicksilver was being introduced in X Men movies and in Avengers movies, uh, and that was confusing and and difficult. But on top of which, that whole backstory where where their Magneto's parents. As you were saying before, that was all an add-on too. You know, originally they were just, you know, two random refugee kids that he found uh, and saved, and they worked for him because of that. And then, uh, you know, Roy Thomas, because he was Roy Thomas in his heart out, made them the kids of the Wizard, a 1940s character, because that's where Roy uh, lived. Uh, and then years later. Uh, you know, Chris and John cooked up this idea that maybe they're actually Magneto's kids, and you know, we can. Yeah, he they they didn't really intend, as I understand it, to ever make that overt. But of course, as soon as they put the seeds down in that X Men issue and that Avengers issue, somebody came along immediately thereafter, Bill Matlow, and went, "I'm doing a story <laughs> about it." So now this was a thing. If you actually look over their publishing history though from the point when that revelation was made to the point where it stopped being true there aren't a lot of stories that they're all in uh it was a fun fact it was a piece that got used every once in a while but it doesn't really loom large over those characters i mean there are a few the age of apocalypse as an example quicksilver is is you know in the cyclops role oh or, yeah I'm, I'm thinking of uh uh some of the stories where you have quicksilver as a kid and now it's magneto's granddaughter and he shows up but th there are a few that are that are pretty revered i would say but i hear you i hear what you're saying too. sure sure and but again it, it always comes down to you know everybody has their point of view on what they care about and what they don't care about and at that point there was a definite desire to separate those characters from the X stuff because in a larger sense, the Marvel controlled part of that was vying with the not Marvel controlled part of that. And, you know, we, we were putting our chips with the Marvel guys. 
Um, you know, that's not the only reason it was done. It, it, nobody came and said, you got to do this. We, we made a choice to go, okay, we're going to separate the, them from this. And none of that's a concern anymore. But frankly, having done it and having gone through the pain of, of having to do it, I'm in no rush to turn it back. Sure. Uh, and I don't know that, that additively you get anything more from it than you do with where the situation is right now, because it's not like those two characters or those three characters, really, I'm thinking mostly of Wanda, but you know, Pietro as well, don't have a ton of history that still plays in. And that mostly plays out the same way, whether or not they are biologically linked or not. I think, uh, I think it's speaking as a fan for a moment, you mentioned the winter soldier, which has such a profound payoff. But in this story with with Wanda and Pietro, it almost I almost feel like we never got the payoff. And and another example that comes to mind is uh, when uh, when we learn Iron Man's parents are are his adopted parents, and then you get this rock star that's his mom and some Hydra agent that's his dad, and you're like, oh, if it was a bigger story, I might have been satisfied. But because sure. the payoffs were were lacking, I think I felt less satisfied. I think that's I think that's completely legitimate, and you know, not every story is is the equal of every story. There are good ones, there are bad ones. Sometimes we hit it really well, and sometimes we don't hit it so good. Uh, and that's just the, the 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 vicissitudes of storytelling. You know, you get another crack next month to do to do a story, uh, and hopefully that one will will be better. Uh, and the stuff that sticks sticks, and the stuff that doesn't stick tends to go away over time. Yeah, um, I'm, uh, I'm thinking of the recent run on Spider-Man where they did the Kindred story that undid Gwen Stacy's Children with Norman Osborn. That was a good payoff. Like it needed to happen. I feel better about that mm-hmm. being resolved. But yeah, this is a, this is like a masterclass in what it's like to run a nerd universe. Like it's a, <laughs> it's really it's really wonderful. Like I uh, my brain is spinning in all in all spaces. Um, anyone have any final questions for Tom before we transition into our inter our our, uh, our issue review? Tom, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for your willingness to engage on a lot of, we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it. It's, it's all good. Yeah, I think, uh, I think you're, I think you're brilliant. Uh, today we're going to be issue. So on the podcast, we're focusing mostly on the 60s stuff, but we're also retroactively adding the stuff as we talk about retroactive continuity. Right. That goes back. Where, and- where, where are you at this point in, in those early X-Men issues? Putting aside this untold tales, we are, where are you? Yeah, so every month we're hitting a few of the X-Men books and then we do a few side stories. This is one of the side stories. But we just hit the first appearance of Havoc and the Living Pharaoh. We're just jumping. Okay, so the- you're you're pretty you're pretty far up. You're right at the end of that original X-Men run. We're getting you've, close. Yeah. You've I gotten have- you've gotten through the worst stuff. <laughs> You've was, gotten through the ones that are the hardest. It, I was, it, it gets a lot easier from there, unless you treat all the reprint issues as issues you have to cover, in which case there's another bad stretch of road coming. I do not. However, I was just doing a calendar out on all the stuff we have to cover between X-Men 66 and before Giant Size number one, and we have another 15 months of content. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, again, we dropped a lot of stories in there, I guess. Yeah. Well, like and- X-Men The Hidden Years and... Well, uh, we, won't, we actually won't cover that. We're uh, we're going to do the stuff that was published originally, like uh, like the Defenders and Captain America Secret Empire stories and amazing yeah, the, characters. And like, there's just a lot to stack up. It's uh, yeah, the Marvel it's, team up, the the uh, uh, the Avengers two parter, all that stuff. 
havoc in the hulk, the hulk. yeah yep. we, we've got a lot of ground it's going to be great but for today we're going to be doing uh untold tales of spider-man number 21 from may 1997 this is by one of my favorite writers of all time kurt Busiek, uh with uh gorgeous pencils by pat O'Leaf, uh inks by al williamson colors by steve mattson letters by richard starkings and uh editor is a, a little friend we like to call tom brevoort <laughs> <laughs> uh tom tell us uh tell us what untold tales of spider-man is and then uh and then we'll jump into number 21 which is a uh, part of kurt busick's i think it, it, it ran for about 25 issues and it then ran 20 two it ran 25 issues yep uh, uh two three annuals or two annuals and a special uh, and then it's come back once or twice you know in more recent years in other annuals and backups and things but those are all kind of more latter day uh untold tales of spider-man was the fifth regular spider-man title during this period in in 1996 and 1995 1997 uh and and what it was was at that time uh the clone saga was going on and the four existing spider-man titles which were uh, i'm going to bungle this slightly because some of the names you know changed as different books shifted <laughs> um but but you know uh, amazing spider-man uh peter parker the spectacular spider-man web of of spider-man and just plain old, got no adjective, Spider-Man. Uh, at that point, we're running almost like a weekly book. Like one issue would drop every week. And even though we had different creators on each uh, issue, the stories would thread through all of those titles. Uh, and Untold Tales was part of an initiative because as, as, as hard as it is to imagine, in 1995, people thought comic books were too expensive. When they cost a dollar ninety nine, um, that's right. A dollar ninety nine was too much for people in the nineties, un- inconceivable. And so there was this initiative to do a small line of books as an experiment uh, at ninety nine cents, uh, and with a couple of other uh, restrictions. We were on slightly crummier paper. I think we had like one or two fewer pages um, to see if there was viability in that in that format. And it turned out there wasn't. <laughs> there really wasn't for all that people said they wanted 99 cent comics. What they really wanted was the comics they were already reading to cost less uh, than they were. But one six real success out of the four books that launched or five or six, I think some of them uh, 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 you know, changed over the course of that time was Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Uh, this was a book that for whatever reason, what we did you know, caught a little spark at that time, partly because it played a counter-programming to the Clone Saga at a time when the Spider-Man books were all about clones, Ben Riley, and is he or isn't he the real Spider-Man, and all this Byzantine stuff. Uh, Untold Tales of Spider-Man was the only book that was about, it's Peter Parker, and he's a kid in high school, and he has these powers, and here are all these crazy villains he has to fight, and He's got a bad boss and he's trying to date a girl, but the girl sometimes doesn't like him. And, you know, all of the, the real typical traditional trappings of and, oh no, Ed May had another heart attack. Right, right. <laughs> um, and the way we did this, uh, you know, Kurt Busiek obviously uh, wrote the series uh, and Kurt before this had done Marvels uh, and had done a couple of other historic uh, things. Uh, and so the untold tale stories, because he and I were, were fairly big continuity heads at that point. Uh, these thread in between 
all of the early issues of Amazing Spider-Man relatively seamlessly. Uh, you know, and 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 we, particularly Kurt, would research stuff like, okay, what's the first time that Spider-Man met the X-Men in the published comics up to that point, uh, which is X-Men 27, in case right. you're wondering. A little cameo where, where the X-Men show up and say, hey, Spider-Man, you want to join the X-Men? And Spidey goes, beat it, you bums, and, and takes off. Uh, and, you know, Kurt would, would dig that up and look at that and go, well, that seems to imply that they've met before. So there could be a story where they met before. So that when they show up on that street corner going, hey, wall crawler, uh, come come hang out with us. It's it's not out of left field. And so we would do that kind of, of deep dive research to figure out what could you do and what couldn't you do? Or what hoops would you have to jump through to tell stories that you wanted to tell? You know, we introduced a bunch of new villains. Uh, we used a bunch of the existing villains. We sometimes put Spider-Man up against villains from other strips from from that era. Um, and all the subplots and all the stuff that went on with the supporting cast uh, actually lines up with what's going on in the main Amazing Spider-Man book. Looking at this, I read it again for the first time in in literally decades today. But there's a bit in this where this issue where Flash Thompson has a as a Spider-Man costume in a bag in the back seat of his car. And that's because in Amazing Spider-Man 19, he's going to dress up as Spider-Man to, to prove that his hero isn't chicken and get beat up by a bunch of thugs. Uh, and so if you know that, that all threads together nicely. And if you don't know that, hopefully the scene makes enough sense here that you don't need to know that. I was reading the books live at the time. You mentioned that 99 cents line, and I'm, rem I'm remembering buying Over the Edge, number one. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of them had had titles like that. Fantastic Four, I think, was unplugged. And I don't know what that means either. <laughs> I'm also remembering, a word. Uh, I'm remembering Uncanny Origins, which, uh, which, yep. was, which actually awakened my interest in old books, too. Uh, we're, we're ready to jump in. Tom, I forgot a question from earlier that I just have to run by you or it's going to bug me, bug me. Uh, I asked you about incontinuity books uh, and retroactive stuff. Uh, X-Men First Class. Uh, the, the Jeff Parker one. Mm -hmm. And then um, it's fun into like Uncanny and Wolverine First Class, too. Right, right. Um, I, I, I would say partially. Um, and and this, is, this is me being pedantic. Um, I don't like that they redesign the costumes. Mm. And so I kind of look at those and go, I can make them fit. But as far as I'm concerned, they're wearing the Jack Kirby costumes um, rather than the, the Gabe Delodo costumes or whoever that was. Uh, and that's just me, you know, that, but, but I don't think there's anything for the most part, at least with the stories in the actual uh, Jeff Parker X-Men first class book, once you started to get into the Wolverines or the other things, those get more loosey goosey to me. When um, I went to, when I worked for the handbooks, I'm remembering X-Men, the hidden years was considered Canon, but X-Men first class was not as we did our story reviews. We were, we were instructed if I'm remembering not to include first class in our handbook profiles. Right. Right. And, and honestly, I might still give you that answer today. If that was a question about a handbook thing that you were researching, um, because I do think they're in some places difficult to reconcile. Sure. 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 Okay. Um, but again, if it's, if it's possible to do so, uh, I just assume scoop up whatever goodness is there. Yeah, um, yeah. That said, again, I don't know that anybody has referred to any of those stories in all the years since. So I don't know how important any of them ended up being. 
So as we jump into, thank you for uh, stepping back with me. That would have bugged me for weeks if I hadn't asked that. <laughs> uh, as we're stepping into the issue, we get a gorgeous cover. I love Patalik's pencils. Uh, we get a gorgeous cover of Spider-Man teaming up with the X-Men. Spider-Man famously, in the episode we did with Ariana Mar, we uh, we got to go back to Spider-Man fighting the X-Men during their Factor 3 saga, uh, which was a lot of fun. So go back and hear that episode as well. Uh, uh, they're in their classic costumes, which are almost kind of spooky. It's the yellow and black. Iceman's still in his lumpy form. I think if we're fitting this into continuity, it fits right after X-Men number seven. Professor X is missing in this issue, and that's when he was off uh, hunting for Lucifer, and that's when they first team up with the Avengers. So we're back into the original uh, into the original title here. Uh, let me... I would have I would have I would have guessed issue eight, but you're absolutely right because Iceman is snowy here. Yeah, it has yeah. to be before issue eight. Yeah, at the top of which they crystallize him into his more uh, familiar hard ice form. And, and then Cyclops he's not, says, "Do that." He's not, he's not lumpy anymore. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to recap the first five pages really quickly. We get a new villain on page one called Menace. He is dressed in red and purple. He has got a cape. Oh, my God. It's the biggest cape, perhaps, in comics. It goes above his head. It billows out from the sides. Uh, he is robbing a bank. He is announcing, and I'm going to read his speech here. I am Menace. I am a mutant homo superior, the next step in human evolution, and my mutant men and I are confiscating the funds in this bank in the name of mutant supremacy, in the name of the total subjugation of the human race. And he's got a bunch of guys that all look the same. They are blue. They kind of look like Namor without enough oxygen. He's got pointy ears and a raised widow's peak. And uh, they're wearing very gay costumes, like red tunics with M's on them and like white popped collars. Uh, it's uh, it's interesting, too, because uh, Spider-Man was always called a menace by J. Jonah Jameson in the newspapers back then. That's a famous, uh, you know, Spider-Man menace. But this guy is capitalizing on people's fear of mutants and uh, robbing everything, teleporting his guys around. At least he claims to be. Uh, they rob a penthouse ballroom. They rob an art museum. Uh, they rob a, a, a armored truck in an avenue. And they are all seemingly happening at the same time. And people are upset and all over the place. Uh, we jump back to Forest Hills where Peter Parker is sitting with his Aunt May. She has just had a heart attack. This is back when Aunt May looked like she was about 99 years old. They've de-aged her to about 65 in the comics now, it seems. I love Aunt May. Uh, she is uh, uh, kind of in a in a delirium mentioning Peter's parents, Richard and Mary, uh, who we didn't get a lot of mention of in the early books. But uh, this is an example of Kurt tying in later continuity. Spidey is very worried about her. But uh, Anna Watson, their friend and neighbor, who is Mary Jane's aunt, offers to watch her. Uh, Anna famously just appeared in the X-Men uh, Hellfire Gala issue. Uh, she is taking uh, Krakoan meds in the current continuity and it's helping her Alzheimer's and Mary Jane is her spokesman. So we get to see an interesting tie in continuity wise there. She can, she can remember the story again. Now. <laughs> oh, yes, this happened in the 90s or was it the 60s, she speaks. <laughs> Um, we jump over to the Daily Bugle. Peter has no money. He has no pictures to sell. He is very upset. And uh, he gets flirted with by Liz Allen, who was kind of the popular girl who kind of crushed on Peter. Liz goes on, of course, to become the uh, very divisive head of Oscorp in the future. She is a powerhouse in the modern continuity. Uh, Betty Brant, who's my favorite Spidey supporting character, is watching from the sidelines like, oh, no, Peter's with Liz. I means I've lost him forever. Uh, Peter and Liz are hanging out. They're kind of connecting and they go into my favorite coffee shop, the Coffee A Go Go, for a cup of Java, 
where Bernard the Poet, that creepy, creepy guy, is <laughs> sitting up on the stage reciting his awful poetry. He says, there, there they were, a generation lost, alone, overwhelmed, thirsting for a wake-up call without even a toothbrush. And Peter's like, oh, God, this guy is terrible. And uh, we recently, this is an example from First Class, Tom, where there's an issue of X-Men First Class that reveals Bernard the Poet is a mutant who can make people listen to his poetry and really like him, but it's never been revealed in the 616 continuity. So we don't know if he's a mutant or not. <laughs> yeah, I, I suspect that one was out of, that was out of continuity. Um, I, 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 uh, I don't think this was deliberate, but when I got to this page uh, reading it earlier, I, I looked at Bernard and his accompanist there and I went, oh, that's Kurt and Pat. <laughs> those are those are caricatures of Kurt Busiek and Pat Olaf. I don't know that they really were. I don't know that Pat did that deliberately, but he might have. And they're small enough and they're far enough away that uh, it, it kind of works either way. So as far as I'm concerned. That's Kurt Busiek and Pat Olive. My friend Corey and I did an episode for our Patreon channel all about Bernard the Poet, during which we performed uh, beat poetry that we wrote with bongos. It was a blast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kurt, let me, I, I, oh God, I just said Kurt. Pat, Tom, let me turn it over to you for uh, the next five pages, if you would. Okay. Um, you know, as as uh, Peter and Liz are, are chatting it up, uh, there's a, a new group comes in uh, the front door and it's the original X-Men all in their civilian identities. Uh, Iceman and the Beast have scoped out this place. They think it's a cool new hangout that they can show up and have supporting cast adventures uh, at in, in later issues of their own title soon to come. And so they've brought everybody down here to, you know, kind of show it off and say, uh, you know, here's, here's, this, uh, here's this cool spot. Uh, and as they're sitting there, uh, there's news coverage in the newspapers of, menaces rampages and people in the crowds uh, at other tables are are talking about mutants and how awful they are and uh, Liz Allen is a little bit disturbed and afraid of the idea that mutants could be walking around anywhere and could be anybody and such and Peter kind of tries to allay her fears and go nah they're just people like anybody else you know they're misunderstood he's kind of relating to them in his Spider-Man-y way and and uh, you know Hank McCoy overhears this and kind of appreciates it. Uh, meanwhile, down the, the street at the, the Van Lunt Trading Company that is secretly owned by a member of Zodiac, although we never mention it here, uh, because Corn that's the kind of stuff that we would do. Cornelius Van Lunt. And yes, he wore a bull costume. Uh, <laughs> so um, you know, Menace and his mutant men are striking again. Thanks to the dread power of teleportation. Uh, and uh, they break into the place. They round up the workers. They're trying to get into the safe. Uh, you know, uh, Menace is, is pontificating about the, uh, the, the, the mutant liberation uh, front and, and uh, uh, how they will subjugate uh, regular human beings and so forth. And one, uh, one employee who happened to be in the, in the bathroom while this was going on uh, is able to make it outside, and he races down the street looking for phone, uh, and he ends up at at the at the coffee house, you know, bursting in uh, and saying, "Oh my God, the the mutants are attacking! They're taking over stuff! They're we got to call the Avengers or somebody!" Uh, and and the X Men all go, "This sounds like the kind of thing we should get involved in. Let's go!" And they all head off to go uh, 
change into their school uniforms. Uh, and uh, Peter, too, figures, oh, here's a good opportunity to take some picks, and maybe Spider-Man will be needed. Uh, and this way I can earn some money, get uh, get Aunt May uh, some more meds uh, if, we need, if we need or whatnot. And, you know, Liz is kind of unhappy because this is not the way her boyfriends typically tend to treat her, leaving her behind in the coffin house. So she is blonde yeah. and beautiful. Do not leave me sitting here. <laughs> what could be more important than me? Um, so uh, you know, back at the at the the Van Lunt trading, the X Men show up in in full uh, black and yellow attire uh, and and uh, put the joust to the mutant men, showing off their individual mutant powers in three very clear panels, so you can see what each one of them does. But the, the, the hostages and the people that are still there are just as afraid of the X-Men because they're weirdos with wings and ice and weird eyes and stuff as they are of the other guys. Uh, and it's at that point, as they're all, you know, some of them are starting to race out of the building, you know, getting away in the mayhem and all this is going on, uh, that Spider-Man shows up. Uh, and Spidey comes in, and there's a momentary confrontation between him and the X-Men, where where the X-Men figure, we're, this guy's got the wrong idea. He thinks we're the bad guys. We're going to have to punch him, too. Uh, but Spidey, uh, having been through this kind of thing before, actually listens when Cyclops tells him, look, it's it's not us. There are these other guys. We're here to help. We're going to go do that now. You can help with us if you want, or you can stay here. Either way is fine, but, you know, please don't punch us in the face. Uh, and Spidey goes, yeah, I, I've, I've been misunderstood enough. I kind of get where you're coming from. I'll at least hold off on the webbing until until we prove this one way or the other. Oh, which is super ironic because when Spidey shows up in the X-Men title back in the 60s, they just, they just beat on him. <laughs> <laughs> Even though they've met him before. Uh, I, I also wanted to note very quickly, uh, Steve Orlando and I talked on the podcast once about what Cyclops' signature sound effect for his optic blast is, and there's nothing consistent. But this issue has my favorite one, and, and that is Zach, Z-A-K-T. So I, I think that should be, uh, you, you know, Spidey has Thwip and and uh, Wolverine has Snick. I think uh, I think Cyclops. Cyclops' is sound effect, at least historically, Cyclops' sound effect was Zrak, Z-Z-R-A-K. Oh, Zrak. Zrak is a great one, too. I'm into it. Yeah, they used that relatively consistently in the Claremont Burn days. So as far as I'm concerned, that's the real one. Uh, and even Zach here, you know, this was a low-intensity optic blast, so he doesn't have <laughs> as much as much kinetic power as a full Zrak. It's, you know, he's just he's just Zacked in that guy. He's not he's not full Zracked in him. Let's go over to Daryl for the next section. All right, so we have Menace. He is uh, properly menacing people within Van Lund. And uh, he, is, he wants to find some bonds. So he is uh, putting some poor employee, based, like he's using his powers. They're electric-based, it seems. And um, the guy is like, no, I have a wife. I have children. They're in the, the safe in the boss's office. And that is when the X-Men and Spider-Man burst in and the menace throws some of these mutant men, the, the blue Namors um, and says, Oh, get them. And the X-Men take on the mutant men. 
Well, Menace escapes and Spider-Man says, okay, X-Men, you take care of this. I'm going to crawl through some duct work. And it's quiet enough because a lot of people have escaped. No one's in the private offices. So I'll be able to hear where Menace is located. And sure enough, he finds Menace and Menace is talking into a communicator on his wrist. It's really a proto Apple watch. And he is not talking like a supervillain. He's talking just like a common criminal. And he's obviously communicating with other teams somewhere because he said, you know, this is Team Alpha. And I think he's talking with Team Beta. Um, and there's a Team Gamma in the mix somewhere in this book, too. So there are multiple teams. And this is where Spidey's like, mm, something's not quite right here. As Menace uses his electric powers and is trying to open this safe to get the bonds. And Peter Parker is having this crisis where, oh, I wish I had a camera so I could take pictures of this, get money so I can get Aunt May her baby aspirin for her next heart attack. But I'm also a superhero, so I need to do the right thing. <laughs> so he bursts through this grate. And um, this is where then Menace reverts back into supervillainy and supervillain speak and is going on more monologues and he is shown to have the power to get rid of the webbing. So Spider-Man can shoot it at him. It's going to be much more of a back and forth fight than Spider-Man anticipates. He has the touch of death. <laughs> the touch of death, indeed. And then, uh, Noel, do you want to close it out for us? Yeah. So then we get um, the scene where Flash has the Spider-Man suit hidden in his car and uh, his friend Jason, I think, makes fun of him for it and calls Spider-Man a coward and Flash goes off about it. That that really upsets him. He just wants to help Spider-Man. Um, and then we're back with Spider-Man fighting Menace um, and he's trying to figure out what is the deal with this dude because things are obviously not what Menace is portraying. Um, but at the same time, he's feeling really guilty about Aunt May. If he dies, she's going to be all alone. Um, and he ends up attacking Menace and like rips off, he calls it armor. Just looks like a, a regular suit, but he says, uh, he finds like a, an electrical harness underneath and realizes that Menace is using this to masquerade as a mutant. So that's how he was making his powers appear. Um, he's able to attack people. Um, and Menace says that he was doing this to cause humans to fear mutants even more. So he's just making mutants seem terrible. And at the same time, the X-Men are fighting the Blue Namors, which is better than what I wrote down as a description. Um, <laughs> Spider-Man flies through the wall with Menace and ends up being able to short circuit these gauntlets that Menace is wearing that are controlling the blue Namors who are actually just robots. And the X-Men and Spider-Man have a moment where Spider-Man gets to like reveal Scooby-Doo style, how he figured out who Menace really was. And Jinkies. then he says like, yes. <laughs> and that there's more than one of them around town um, so that's how he's appearing to teleport. And so the X-Men decide that they need to take care of the other Menace 
guys and invite Spider-Man along, but he turns them down and they're pretty upset about it. They're like, oh, well, Spider-Man was cool with us before, but he doesn't want to hang around the mutants. So they're, they're pretty upset and hurt about it. Um, but in the last panel, we see Spider-Man admitting to himself and thinking that he can't go through and help the X-Men because he's got to get back to Aunt May because he's so worried about her. There, uh, there's something fascinating, and this is where the podcast gets serious for a second. We're always looking at the X-Men as kind of a queer allegory, at least on this podcast. Uh, so when you have someone who is pretending to be a mutant to capitalize on the fear uh, that people have about mutants in order to commit crimes, there's some sort of allegory about people capitalizing on uh, gay hate, right? Like there's, there's, uh, there's so much to be told. And this this issue stands out for that reason. I don't think we see a lot of that in the X-Men for a while, at least. We see characters like William Stryker much farther in the future who really build on this type of theme, uh, weaponizing the fear. Uh, but this is kind of an early example of that, even though it's set retroactively. And that makes it a pretty special story for me in some ways. Uh, any thoughts from any of you on that? Well, these, I mean, these days, the, the term didn't exist then, but, you know, these days it's a, it's a false flag operation. It's sure. uh, you know, it's it's uh, and and it's something that people seem to be very worried about today, or that often you know want to use as a convenient excuse whenever anybody does anything untowards that seem to be on on their side of whatever the divide is. Oh, that was that wasn't really our guys. That was some of their guys pretending to be our guys, and we would never do that. Um. So maybe it's more it's more relevant and, and forward looking than we realized in you know 1997. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons the X Men is so beloved by so many people who've been disenfranchised. I mean, as a queer man, I have been bullied and called a faggot and screamed at, and uh, I have I have queer children who have been made fun of, uh, and so being afraid for being who you are is something that exists within me. And I think as a closeted teenager, when I was reading these books initially, I was really drawn to the books for that reason, because here's these mutants who are attacked for being mutant or who are targeted. Uh, and uh, we can take that conversation a lot of places, but there's a, there's something very special in what comes across as just kind of a silly, fun, like, oh, we got him again, Scooby-Doo story. There's a, there's a lot that we can draw out of it as far as, uh, you know, people who, who can resonate with these types of stories. Uh, I think it's pretty powerful in that way. Um, uh, Daryl and Noel, any thoughts on that before we wrap up? Both of you are so conscientious. You're just so polite. <laughs> uh, uh, Tom, I have been a fan of yours for so many years. What a wonderful, wonderful well, thank thing you. To, to meet you. Uh, and again, I get to go, I get to meet my old boss, which is, <laughs> which is also kind of fun. When I was writing for the handbooks, I was uh, living in a small town in Idaho and working remotely. And I literally never met anyone that I worked with for many years. So it's kind of fun to, uh, to uh, connect with you for a while. Um, I've had an absolute blast today for all of you. Thank you. This is a, this is a great time. Like I say, happy to happy to do it. Happy to be here. It was a good conversation. So, uh, you know, thanks for your hospitality. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I it, what a joy to have you. When I uh, when I uh, emailed you, I thought, well, I won't get Tom, but why not try? And then when you emailed back, I was like, oh my god. <laughs> I have, uh, I, you know, I have a low a low barrier to entry. I'll I'll talk to anybody. <laughs> Well, if you had fun, then I, uh, I, I consider it a personal success. Um, as we are wrapping up here, let people know, recognizing this episode is going to come out uh, right around September 24th. 
uh, let people know where they can find you online and what we might have to look forward to uh, coming out around this time. Uh, we'll go in reverse order. Let's do uh, Daryl, Noel, and then Tom. Well, you can find my podcast coming out weekly wherever you find your podcast. It is the X Factor Files podcast. You can find us on Instagram at X Factor Files podcast. And personally, I just published my first book. So oh, it is a dual biography about my great grandma and my great great grandma, looking at them sort of um, from a distance and the times they lived in and what they went through. So I used a lot of primary and secondary sources. You can find it on Amazon and Barnes Noble. It is called On the Go All the Time, The Unusually Usual Lives of Two Midwestern Women. So I encourage everyone to check it out. You can get a physical copy or a Kindle or electronic copy. I thought I had my copy here. I just finished your book, Daryl, which I texted you about. Uh, it's great. If you like biographies, it's thought provoking. It takes you to a space in America at a particular time. It's a story from a, a feminist perspective about strong women who rise above difficult circumstances. Uh, I was I really enjoyed your book. Great job. Thank you, Chad. And then uh, Noelle, you go, you go next. That's awesome. I'm excited to check your book out. Um, but you can see or find my podcast at X-Men Unraveled um, on podcast places or at X-Men Unraveled on Instagram. Um, I am trying to think where I'll be when this comes out. I'll be somewhere in the early issues of the Uncanny X-Men. <laughs> um, just finishing up like issues four and five right now. So I'll be a little ways down the road by then. And uh, Tom, uh, well, I'm I'm not as uh, as prolific as anybody else here. <laughs> um, in September, I'll I'll put some comics out, so you can probably find things I've worked on this week at your local comic shop. But exactly what at this point I couldn't tell you. I don't have my charts and graphs and things in front of me. Um, you know, I'm I'm online everywhere. I've got my main site at tombrevort.com which is easy to find, assuming that you spell the name right, which most people don't. And uh, I have uh, the weekly newsletter at Substack, which is a relatively new thing where I'm putting together ridiculous thoughts and comic book history and a lot of nonsense every week uh, and sending it to people. So that that's another place. And then, you know, on, on all the different platforms, so on, on your Twitters and your Instagrams and your Facebooks and your whatnots, uh, somewhere out there, I, I am there because I am all present and uh, uh, all inclusive. Uh, uh, you all three, and this is a high compliment for me, all three of you give me like a librarian energy. Librarians are my favorite people. <laughs> it's been so fun to just sit and talk nerdy with all of you. Uh, before I do my outro, Tom, can I ask you one more question? Sure. Uh, when we were doing the handbooks, we would consider stuff in canon. I know artists and writers love to put stuff in the background. So across uh, across the universe, you'll see Spidey swinging by and there will be like Brevoort dry cleaners in the back or like Brevoort's hot dogs. I think your name has been used for more background like companies in the Marvel universe <laughs> uh, than any other. So do you see royalties from all of these <laughs> Of these companies. Well, the, the, the reality is that the Brevoort family, not, not my own particular branch, but a branch of the Brevoort family in the 1700s and, and first half of the 1800s owned like a third of Manhattan. They owned a ton of real estate there. Fascinating. And so, and so, you know, if you go down into, into, you know, lower Manhattan, 
you can still find, you know, there's Brevoort Hotels and the Brevoort East and there's a Brevoort Street and there's another Brevoort Street out in Brooklyn. Um, so I tend to think they probably get the money, not me. <laughs> I uh, I love seeing your name every time it shows up in a book. It's uh, the running gag that's lasted for decades. It makes me happy every <laughs> time. Uh, what a joy. Okay, uh, for Gray Malkin Lane, you can find us on Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram, Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter. Uh, it's me running those accounts. You can chat with me anytime. As always, huge thanks to uh, Mike Bell and Seth Martell for all their help in running this podcast with art and sound. Uh, around the time this comes out, we will be doing a Patreon episode. I've got uh, uh, one with uh, Steve Fox on the character Solar coming out right after uh, right after this, which is uh, a lot of fun. And uh, the the next couple episodes after this, we will be interviewing uh, the author uh, Ramzi Fawaz. Uh, and then uh, we have the trial of Mastermind and Mesmero. We're doing a mock criminal trial uh, shortly after that, which is going to be... A ton of fun, followed up by a panel of uh, all women uh, doing a conversation about mind control and its use in comic book history for sexual assault, which is a very serious and sobering topic, but we have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, we've got an incredible panel uh, assembled for that. Uh, so uh, join us uh, back for that, and uh, we will see you all back here next time on Grand Mountain Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.